The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 15th day of October 2012. Welcome to episode 247 of the Corbett Report podcast, Requiem for the Suicided, Vince Foster. Now, if you cast your mind back to last week's edition of this podcast, you'll remember from episode 246, Meet the Clintons, that we were outlining in extensive, painstaking detail at least some of the alleged and proven and documented illegal activities that the Clintons have engaged in over the years, also their tendency to be pathological liars and the various scams that they've been involved in, and all of how all of that has swirled together as they rose in this stratospheric ascent through the Bilderberg Group into the upper echelons of power in Washington, D.C., But one thing that we did not really touch on in that episode and that we will start to explore today in much greater detail is the phenomenon of the Clinton body count. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this, this is basically a list that originated online over a decade ago now, a decade and a half when Bill Clinton was still in office, that purported to gather a list of names of people who were in one way or another associated with the Clintons, some in their employ, some others who were alleged to be associates in various capacities, who ended up meeting untimely demises in one way or another, sometimes in presumably mundane circumstances, sometimes in mysterious circumstances. And the list is really meant to, once it is viewed in its totality, at least raise the suspicion that uh, that some of the associates of the Clintons had met uh, their early deaths because of information they may have had on the Clintons, and that this Clinton body count may be a, really a, a tally of how the Clintons really did manage to soar to the heights of political power that they did, despite the trail of destruction and illegal activities they left in their wake. And it is a compelling list, and I will put on, uh, in the links for today's uh, uh, show notes, I will put in the links there uh, a link to a representative example of this body count list. There are different versions of it online, but basically it's always a, a similar format, just listing some of the people and how they met their demise. And it is an interesting list to go through, but of course we have to take it with at least a grain of salt. Because certainly anyone who is well politically connected, like the Clintons, would be expected to know an awful lot of people, and just statistically would have more people in their in their in their sphere of influence who would have died at uh, an early age or for through whatever circumstances. So certainly, I don't think this list can be taken as definitive as a list of everyone that the Clintons have had rubbed out. And I think we have to examine each case on a case-by-case basis to think of whether or not there is any legitimacy to the claim that this person's death had anything at all to do with the Clintons. But and, and one source that actually makes this, I think, quite explicit and, and does a good job of, of summarizing that position is Snopes.com, that source that we can turn to for the real uh, story behind any conspiracy theory online, right? Well, obviously, we have to take Snopes.com with more than a hefty grain of salt as well when they start venturing outside of the urban legends and other things that they're uh, the authorities on and uh, going into political conspiracies, which they are obviously slanted on. But uh, but here on their Clinton body count entry, which I'll link to again, you can go and read through and they'll talk about how this list is, uh, well, shall we say, uh, not to be taken uh, at face value. And I agree for the most part. I think, again, we have to look at each case on a case-by-case basis, which is why it is important to start looking at some of these cases that I think are particularly compelling in this Clinton body count list, including the case of Kevin Ives and Don Henry. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of this case, I'll put the little summary that Snopes.com has here. They say 17-year-old boys who apparently saw something related to drugs in Mina by accident late at night. Officially ruled an accidental death on the train tracks, 
but evidence shows they died before being placed on the tracks, one of a crushed skull and the other of a knife wound in the back. Now, that's a pretty interesting summary. It's actually, for as far as it goes, quite correct. They were suspected of having seen something related to a drug shipment in Mena, Arkansas, late at night, and they were found uh, dead on the train tracks. It was ruled an accidental death that they had fallen asleep on the tracks, but it was later discovered that they had, in fact, been murdered and then placed on the train tracks. So all of that is actually a correct summary of the, the bare-bones details of this, and of course this goes back to the Mena, Arkansas drug running that was taking place under Bill Clinton's watchful nose back in the 1980s when he was governor of Arkansas, and that is something that we've gone through time and again on this podcast back in episode 19, and again last week in episode 246. So I'll direct you there if you haven't heard of the Mena, Arkansas drug running operation and how both Clinton and George H.W. Bush were connected in that and complicit in that CIA drug running scheme through Mena, Arkansas. But here are the death of two boys who apparently uncovered too much about that drug running scheme and ended up paying the ultimate price. And they're included in this Clinton body count. But Snopes goes on to break down why this isn't a suspicious incident. It says, quote, Henry and Ives were run over by a train on the 23rd of August, 1987. Dr. Fami Malik, Arkansas's former state medical examiner, ruling the deaths accidental, said the teens fell asleep on the tracks after smoking marijuana. A 1988 Saline County Grand Jury determined the boys were murdered and their bodies afterwards laid on the tracks, but no other conclusions were reached and no indictments were returned. The FBI is still investigating the deaths. Well, there you go. Snopes has it all tied up in a pretty pink bow for you. Yes, indeed, these boys were murdered and then placed on the tracks. And yes, the state medical examiner, Fami, Dr. Fami Malek, came to the absurd conclusion that they had accidentally died after falling asleep on the train tracks. And uh, that was proven to be a lie, but that doesn't mean there was anything suspicious or untoward about this. It's just that Malek was grossly incompetent at his job and no big deal, right? Well... Perhaps there's more to that story than meets the eye, and it goes to the very heart of how the Clintons could amass such a massive body count, including many of their old associates and people who were tangentially connected with their illegal dealings in Arkansas without being discovered. And it goes back to this case of the Mena, Arkansas drug drop that was seen by Kevin Ives and, and uh, Henry, uh, uh, Don Henry. And it also goes straight to the heart of who Dr. Fami Malik was and why he was the state medical examiner during Bill Clinton's reign. On the night of August 23rd, 1987, just outside the little town of Alexander, Arkansas, Kevin Ives, 17, and Don Henry, 16, witnessed a cocaine drop, which was part of the drug smuggling operation in Mena, Arkansas. The boys were captured and their hands were tied behind their backs. They were kicked and beaten and finally executed. One of the boys was stabbed to death. The bodies were wrapped in a tarpaulin and placed across the railway tracks to be mangled by the next train. The Arkansas medical examiner, Fami Malik, ruled the deaths an accident. He said the boys had smoked marijuana joints and had fallen into a trance on the railway tracks side by side. As the facts would later show, the crime lab never tested the concentration of marijuana in their blood. They were told to back Malik's ruling. Bill Clinton was the only person to whom the crime lab answered. Kevin Ives' mother, Linda, created such a stir that a grand jury was called to investigate the case. The bodies were exhumed, and a second autopsy was conducted by the Atlanta medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Burton. He showed an enhanced photograph of the wound to six other forensic investigators. They all concurred that it was a stab wound. He also found that Kevin Ives had been smashed in the head with a rifle butt. The report of the grand jury concluded that the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives were definitely the result of foul play. It urged that law enforcement agencies, the prosecuting attorney's office, to continue the investigation into the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives and into the drug problem in Saline County. Because of Linda Ives' investigation into the death of her son, she was placed on Bill Clinton's enemy list by White House counsel Mark Fabian. 
Already, people associated with the case were beginning to die in what amounted to a reign of terror among young people in Alexander, Arkansas. April 1988, Keith Coney told his mother he knew too much about the Ives-Henry murders and feared for his life. After being slashed in the neck, he was fleeing for his life on his motorcycle when he slammed into the back of a truck and was killed. Booney Bearden, a friend of the boys, disappeared. His body was never found. November 1988, Keith McCaskill claimed to have knowledge of the Ives-Henry murders, but was killed before he could testify. McCaskill, knowing that his life was in danger, had said goodbye to his friends and family. He died from 113 stab wounds. January 1989, Gregory Collins claimed to have knowledge of the Ives-Henry murders, but was killed before he could testify. Collins was found dead from a shotgun blast to the face. April 1989, Jeff Rhodes claimed to have knowledge of the Ives-Henry murders, but was killed before he could testify. His body was found in the city dump, dead of a gunshot wound to the head. July 1989, Richard Winters claimed to have knowledge of the Ives-Henry murders, but was killed before he could testify. Winters was silenced by a blast from a sawed-off shotgun. June 1990, Jordan Kettleson claimed to have information on the Ives-Henry murders, but was killed before he could testify. He died from a shotgun blast to the head. To date, no arrests have been made in regard to these murders. Arkansas's medical examiner ruled the death of two teenage boys an accident, while several forensic investigators and a grand jury concluded they were murdered. But this was not the first nor the last time that Fami Malik's rulings would cause controversy. In 1985, a North Arkansas man was fatally shot, and Fami Malik ruled it a suicide. There were four gunshot wounds to the chest. In a 1986 case, Malik's ruling was accidental drowning. It was later discovered that the victim had been shot in the head. In 1992, a man's body was found with five bullet wounds, but Malik nevertheless ruled it a suicide. In his most incredible ruling, Malik concluded that a James Milam had died of an ulcer. However, the man's skull was later recovered. He had been decapitated with a sharp knife. That Malik survived in Arkansas is a testament to Clinton's power. Just before Clinton announced his intentions to run for president, Malik was moved to another state job. Well, if Dr. Fami Malik's reign as state medical examiner in Arkansas doesn't raise a few eyebrows, well, then you're probably not paying attention. For those who are paying attention and are more interested in that, I'll, of course, direct you back to that documentary, which can be found in the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com. But let's continue moving along, and after having established that at the very least, some of the cases involved in the Clinton body count list are worthy of investigation... Well, perhaps another of those entries would be worthy of our attention today, and that's where we come to, really, the heart of today's episode, Vince Foster. Vincent Walker Foster Jr. was the deputy White House counsel during the first six months of the Bill Clinton White House administration, until, that is, he was found dead on July 20th, 1993, just six months after Bill Clinton assumed office. Now, at the time, perhaps the political significance of this murder was not, or suicide as it's been labeled, was not fully explored in the media, but it should be remembered that this was the highest ranking White House official to die during his time in the White House since the assassination of JFK. So it was a pretty big deal, and, uh, well, deservedly so, as we'll find out today. But before we start getting into the very, very, very many pieces of the puzzle, which show that there is very much a puzzle that has not been put together in the various investigations that concluded that Vincent Foster killed himself that day, let's turn to one of the uh, official stories, the, the official final word on Vince Foster's death and why it has been ruled a suicide, and for that, we'll go to the Kenneth Starr Whitewater investigation, which issued a report on the death of Vincent Foster back in the late 1990s. That was one of the several investigations that had been conducted and all of which concluded that Vincent Foster indeed died of a suicide, a 
self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So reading from this summary of conclusions of the Whitewater Investigation's Foster Report, again, which will be linked up in the show notes for today's episode, quote, The available evidence points clearly to suicide as the manner of death. That conclusion is based on the evidence gathered and the analyses performed during previous investigations, and the additional evidence gathered and analyses performed during the OIC investigation, including the evaluations of Dr. Lee, Dr. Blackburn, Dr. Berman, and the various OIC investigators. When police and rescue personnel arrived at the scene, they found Mr. Foster dead with a gun in his right hand. That gun, the evidence tends to show, belonged to Mr. Foster. Gunshot residue-like material was observed on Mr. Foster's right hand in a manner consistent both with test firings of the gun and with the gun cylinder cap. Gunshot residue was found in his mouth. DNA consistent with that of Mr. Foster was found on the gun. Blood was detected on the paper initially used to package the gun. Blood spatters were detected on the lifts from the gun. In addition, lead residue was found on the clothes worn by Mr. Foster when found at the scene. This evidence taken together leads to the conclusion that Mr. Foster fired the gun into his mouth. This evidence also leads to the conclusion that this shot was fired while he was wearing the clothes in which he was found. Mr. Foster's thumb was trapped in the trigger guard, and the trigger caused a noticeable indentation on the thumb, demonstrating that the gun remained in his hand after firing. The police detected no signs of a struggle at the scene, and examination of Mr. Foster's clothes by Dr. Lee revealed no evidence of a struggle or of dragging. Nor does the evidence reveal that Mr. Foster was intoxicated or drugged. Dr. Lee found gunshot residue in a sample of the soil from the place where Mr. Foster was found. He also found a bone chip containing DNA consistent with that of Mr. Foster in debris from the clothing. Dr. Lee observed blood-like spatter on vegetation in the photographs of the scene. Investigators found a quantity of blood under Mr. Foster's back and head when the body was turned, and Dr. Baer, who performed the autopsy, found a large amount of blood in the body bag. In addition, the blood spatters on Mr. Foster's face had not been altered or smudged, contrary to what likely would have occurred had the body been moved and the head wrapped or cleaned. Fort Marcy Park is publicly accessible and traveled. Mr. Foster was discovered in that park in broad daylight, and no one saw Mr. Foster being carried into the park. All of this evidence taken together leads to the conclusion that the shot was fired by Mr. Foster where he was found in Fort Marcy Park. The evidence with with respect to his state of mind points as well to suicide. Mr. Foster told his sister four days before his death that he was depressed. He cried at dinner with his wife four days before his death. He told his mother a day or, or two before his death that he was unhappy because his work was a grind. He was consulting attorneys for legal advice the week before his death. He told several people he was considering resignation. He wrote a note that he was not meant for the job or the spotlight of public life in Washington. Here, ruining people is considered sport. The day before his death, he contacted a physician and indicated that he was under stress. He was prescribed antidepressant medication and took one tablet that evening. Dr. Berman concluded that Mr. Foster's last 96 hours show clear signs of crisis and uncharacteristic vulnerability. Dr. Berman stated, furthermore, that there is little doubt that Foster was clinically depressed in early 93 and perhaps subclinically even before this. Dr. Berman concluded that, in my opinion, and to a 100% degree of medical certainty, the death of Vincent Foster was a suicide. No plausible evidence has been presented to support any other conclusion. In sum, based on all of the available evidence, which is considerable, The OIC agrees with the conclusion reached by every official entity that has examined the issue. Mr. Foster committed suicide by gunshot in Fort Marcy Park on July 20th, 1993. Well, that's the official version of events. So what is the unofficial version of those events? Well, for that, let's turn to, of course, the alternative media. In this case, Michael Rivero's WhatReallyHappened.com. And for those of you who don't know, WhatReallyHappened.com really came out of Michael Rivero's own investigation into the Vince Foster murder, which was the his initial invest, uh, investigation that got him launched into the entire, well, uh, alternative blogosphere, which he's been in since 19, the early 1990s when he first became involved in the case. So it is a repository of information on this case, including all sorts of documents documents, the actual scanned originals of various documents involved in this case, so I cannot recommend highly enough, at the very least, 
the overview page uh, for the Vince Foster death at whatreallyhappened.com, which, of course, I will link up in the show notes. So you can go and check it out and go to all of the various links that uh, that he provides to all of these documents, etc. But let's just take the big overview of his version of this death. And once again, this comes from whatreallyhappened.com. Quote, On July 20th, 1993, six months to the day after Bill Clinton took office as President of the United States... The White House Deputy Counsel, Vincent Foster, told his secretary, Deborah Gorham, I'll be right back. He then walked out of his office after offering his co-worker, Linda Linda Tripp, the leftover M&Ms from his lunch tray. That was the last time Vincent Foster was seen alive. Contrary to the White House spin, Vincent Foster's connections to the Clintons was primarily via Hillary rather than Bill. Vincent and Hillary had been partners together at the Rose Law Firm, and allegations of an ongoing affair had persisted from the Little Rock days to the White House itself. Vincent Foster had been struggling with the presidential blind trust. Normally a trivial matter, the trust had been delayed for almost six months, and the U.S. Trustee's Office was beginning to make noises about it. Foster was also the keeper of the files of the Clintons' Arkansas dealings and had indicated in a written memo that whitewater is a can of worms that you should not open. But Vincent's position at the White House did not sit well with him. Only days before, following a public speech stressing the value of personal integrity, he had confided in friends and family that he was thinking of resigning his position. Foster had even written an outline for his letter of resignation, thought by this writer to have been used as the center portion of the fake suicide note. Foster had scheduled a private meeting with Bill Clinton for the very next day, July 21st, 1993, at which it appeared Foster intended to resign. Vincent Foster had spent the morning making busy work in his office and had been in attendance with the White House announcement of at the White House announcement of Louis Free as the new head of the FBI earlier in the day, passing by the checkpoint manned by White House uniformed guard styles. This is a key point. The White House is the most secure private residence in the world, equipped with a sophisticated entry control system and video surveillance system installed by the MITRE Corporation. Yet no record exists that Vincent Foster left the White House under his own power on July 20th, 1993. No video of him exists exiting the building. No logbook entry shows he checked out of the White House. Several hours after he was last seen inside the White House, Vincent Foster was found dead in Fort Marcy Park in a Virginia suburb just outside Washington, D.C. The death was ruled a suicide, the first major Washington suicide since Secretary of Defense James Forrestal in 1949. But almost immediately, rumors began to circulate that the story of a suicide was just a cover-up for something much worse. The first witness to find the body insisted there had been no gun near the body. The memory in Foster's pager had been erased. Critical evidence began to vanish. Many witnesses were harassed. Others were simply ignored. There were even suggestions the body had been moved, and a Secret Service memo surfaced which reported that Foster's body had been found in his car. The official reports were self-contradictory. End quote. Once again, I will exhort you to go to the link to that actual document in this in today's show notes so that you can go and read through that with all of the actual uh, links that are provided in that document itself to all of the documentation and various things that are linked up to go into more detail, including that Secret Service memo where they say that he was found in the car, for example, or or evidence of uh, people being harassed and, and things of that nature. So a lot of material to go through there. But let's start examining some of the evidence of this case and see if we can come to a better understanding of what actually did or did not take place that day on July 20th, 1993 in Fort Marcy Park. And to do that, let's start with a snippet from a very interesting documentary, The Death of Vincent Foster. Sergeant George Gonzalez, a lead paramedic for the Fairfax County Fire and Rescue, was one of the first on the scene after responding to a 911 call. Gonzalez, a 13-year veteran, had previously examined a number of suicide victims with gunshot wounds to the head. He was shocked by the obvious lack of blood at the scene, stating, usually a suicide by gunshot is a mess. His observations were confirmed by many others who were present, including members of the park police. Christopher Ruddy, who at the time was a reporter for the New York Post, 
had discovered that most of those on the scene that night had never been interviewed, an oversight which he quickly began to correct. In January of 1994, I went down and um, met with um, some of the emergency workers and police that were on the scene that night. And I found out that many of them were surprised about the body and the condition of uh, Mr. Foster's body when they found it. Uh, for example, the lead paramedic who was at the scene that night noted that he had never seen a suicide like this, gunshot wound to the head, with so little blood. Gene Wheaton, retired U.S. Special Agent with the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, has more than 35 years' experience as a homicide investigator. He spent several weeks in Washington investigating the Foster case. I was hired uh, uh, to specifically go to Washington and make some inquiries into the circumstances surrounding the, uh, the death of White House legal counsel Vincent Foster. It is my professional opinion, and I've been a homicide investigator for 35, 40 years, that uh, the events surrounding the death were treated in such a cavalier and bizarre manner that it had to have been a cover-up. I have uh, never in my career seen a, a gunshot wound into the mouth by a suicide that didn't have a tremendous amount of blowback of blood, brains, and tissue, uh, both in the out of the mouth and the nose, the ears, and the back of the skull at the exit wound. It's a very sloppy, gory sight to see. And when a person fires a 38 caliber revolver, which the, the alleged weapon was, uh, or higher caliber than that, uh, there's a tremendous amount of gases that have no place to go inside the skull cavity, and it just blows everything out. Uh, for them to say that <clears throat> there was a very minor amount of blood at the scene, which, which is what's in the official reports, uh, I've, I find it hard to believe. It, it doesn't make any professional sense. The Fisk report attempts to explain away the lack of blood by stating that the bullet contused the left side of the brain stem, causing instantaneous complete incapacitation including the immediate stopping of the heart and blood flow. Noted California pathologist and gunshot wound expert, Dr. Richard Mason, disagrees, stating, certainly you can have heart activity for a minute or two following brainstem impairment. Page 52 of the Fisk report states, Foster's body was positioned on a steep slope with his head near the top of the berm and his legs extended down the hill. As a result, when his heart stopped beating, gravity permitted the settling of blood into the lower portions of his body rather than out of the wound in his head. This statement contradicts an earlier statement on page 36 where Fisk writes, At approximately 7.40 p.m., Dr. Donald Hout, the Fairfax County medical examiner, arrived at the scene to examine the body. At that point, Foster's body was rolled over, and those present observed a large pool of blood located on the ground where Foster's head had been. Dr. Hout, who was never interviewed by Fisk, vehemently denies seeing a large pool of blood on the ground. EMS technician Corey Ashford, who placed Foster's remains into a body bag, re-emphasized the lack of blood by stating he couldn't even see an exit wound. This statement led to initial reports that there was no exit wound. The person that put Foster's body in a body bag later that night, an EMS worker, said that he didn't even have to use rubber gloves, he didn't remember even seeing an exit wound out of the back of Foster's head, and he didn't even have to wash his hands after doing this task. This important testimony, which further reinforced the lack of blood at the scene, was omitted from the report. Very interesting. Well, from that clip, we can garner at the very least that there are significant questions about some of the forensic evidence at the scene that day and some of the, uh, the inconsistencies when it comes to the blood spatter and other forensic issues involved with that day. But as that clip intimated, there were also accounts of not only what happened to uh, Vince Foster that were tampered with, but also 
the case of the various eyewitnesses involved in seeing various aspects of what took place that day that were uh, actually changed, altered, harassed, uh, and otherwise tampered with by the FBI itself. This isn't a claim to make lightly, and it's not one to go undocumented, so let's document it. And we can get it straight from the eyewitness himself. There was an eyewitness who actually saw the uh, one of the vehicles in question that day and who was questioned later on by the FBI about what he had seen. And the FBI actually ended up completely lying about and fabricating his uh, uh, what he supposedly said to them. So let's get it directly from the source himself. This is Patrick Knowlton, one of the eyewitnesses of what happened at Fort Marcy Park that day. Patrick, uh, why don't you begin with the day you drove into uh, Fort Marcy Park. Well, uh, for the listening audience, uh, we are talking about the Vince Foster case, and I was a Whitewater grand jury witness, Howard, as you know. Um, I drove into Fort Marcy Park uh, on July 20, 1993. Um, what I saw in the park uh, was two cars. I later, uh, that evening, after finding out Mr. Foster was dead, I called the, uh, the park police, and I told the park police I'd seen these two cars in the parking lot. One car was an old rust brown car with Arkansas license plates, and the other car was a, a light blue, metallic blue car with a, with a gentleman, a man in, in the car. Um, that was the end of that. I never <coughs> heard from the park police again. I never followed the Foster case. I had no idea that, you know, I heard a guy who committed suicide, and I figured that was it. What I saw in the park, this guy acting very suspicious in the blue car, um, which, you know, made me aware of my surroundings. Um, after, um, like I say, after I called the park police, that was it. It wasn't until nine months later, and, and John may have to intervene here because I get the dates mixed up sometimes, but um, nine months later I was contacted by the uh, FBI. FBI took over the uh, investigation with, with the uh, Fisk uh, investigation. And Fisk was Ken Starr's predecessor that's as independent counsel. That's correct. I was called by them. I was brought into their office. I was interviewed. I was interviewed by uh, Larry Monroe and, and uh, William Columbell, two FBI agents who were assigned to Fisk. As I recall your story, your account, uh, to put it bluntly, you drove into the park to heed the call of nature. That, that's true. That's true. And um, you saw a very uh, ominous, threatening kind of fellow there that's who was correct. looking at you uh, in a threatening way. Yeah, he, he, that's what I say. My awareness was uh, was brought to its height because this guy made me nervous at first, and uh, so I was you know, paying close attention to him. There was only two cars in the parking lot in mine, so I, had a, I remembered very well what You were I there saw. at a time that was inconvenient for him, it would seem. I think so. I was there at 4.30. They found Mr. Foster's body. At, it, his body was found at quarter to six, so about, I was there about 70 minutes for the discovery of the body. Um, as I was saying, the FBI then interviewed me um, Mr. William, uh, uh, William Collinbell and Larry Monroe, and they wanted to talk about the car that I saw. They were very concerned about this, this vehicle that I saw, and I, like I say, I saw an older Russ Brown Honda. Um, Mr. Uh, Monroe showed me these various photographs of a Honda, that, uh, pictures of a Honda that was taken in the parking lot at the U.S. Park Police Headquarters, not in the park itself, but in the U.S. Park Police Headquarters where they had allegedly parked the car after towing it from Fort Marcy Park. I looked at the pictures. I told Mr. Monroe and Mr. Colombo that wasn't the car I saw in the park. So, in other words, the park police had obtained Vince Foster's real car. I yeah. Well, yeah. The it, was, it was Vince Foster's car that they had. I still don't know if it was Vince Foster's car that I saw. I, mean, well, I have no idea. No. They, I, they represented that what they had was Vince Foster's car. Right. But the car that you saw looked very different. Totally different than what they said was Vince Foster's exactly. car. And they were upset that your story didn't fit their story. That's true. And um, so when I got ready to leave uh, after this two-and-a-half-hour <coughs> FBI interview, um, the Mr. Monroe, Agent Monroe, said to me, don't go to the press with this story about the car. It's not good for the Fosters or the president or something to that effect. Um, and I just said, you know, I didn't plan on it. I never thought about going to the press about anything. I, so the FBI told you to keep quiet. Keep quiet, exactly. So I did keep quiet. About three weeks later or two weeks later, three weeks later, they called me back in for another interview, and this time they wanted to make sure that I was really sure about the car I saw, this rust brown, you know, color like your table, your desk here. Um, again, he showed me um, some pictures. He read me some interviews of the park police who had said they, they saw a, brown, a grayish brown car, and I kept saying, well, the car that I saw was older than the pictures you're showing me. It's a totally different color. Went over to the FBI laboratory. That's where... Um, Mr. Uh, uh, Frederick Whitehurst had been demoted from bomb expert to a pain expert. 
um, and Mr. Uh, Whitehurst was in the laboratory. He took me to the paint panel section. I pulled out the panels uh, that fit the color of the car that I saw in Fort Marcy Park, and they fit an 83 or an 84 Honda Accord. Um, and Mr. Foster's car, of course, was an 89 Honda. 89 silver yeah. color. Silver. Uh, so in my FBI reports, after I was, uh, again, I was contracted by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. Um, now, who is uh, Mr. Pritchard? I know who he is, but you tell Mr. us. Mr. Pritchard is a, uh, he was the London bureau chief here in Washington, D.C. for the London Sunday Telegraph. Um, he, he was, was a reputable journalist from the United Kingdom. I, that's right, absolutely. And uh, he um, brought me into his office. He showed me his uh, what he had re uh, obtained, or somebody obtained these these files from the FBI, the 302s, their statements that they type up after they take notes of your of your interview. And I started reading the interview, and the first thing that uh, caught my eye was they said that I saw an 88 to a 90 Honda Accord. So this is important. The FBI, in their official version, changed your testimony absolutely without your knowledge or permission absolutely I had, I had no idea what they, they had changed my story actually then they said that the guy that was in the park at the time I was being interviewed they said could you recognize this guy and I said well if you show me a lineup or a photo spread I could pick the guy out with no problem well in the report they said I couldn't identify the guy now or any time in the future which was another uh, fabrication. Then um, there was many other things all the way through. It was just so there was the, hostility toward you on the part of the people interviewing you. Yeah, there was hostility when I was being interviewed, but I mean, I just thought it was the nature of the job, and I was nervous anyways. I'd never been called in to be interviewed by the FBI or any agency for that matter. <clears throat> Excuse me, so... Did the Park Police ever interview no, you? No, Park Police never called. Okay. I mean, I, I, I initiated the call myself, so... Who was the first journalist to talk to you? Was it Pritchard or someone else? Yeah, Pritchard was the first. And what was Pritchard's message? Did, was he skeptical of you at the beginning? Yeah, because when I started telling him, we met at a coffee shop, I started telling him the story, and he asked me if I was lying. And I said, lying? What, what would I be lying about? So that's when I went back to his office, he showed me the reports, and that's when I started saying, well, the FBI's lying. I mean, so in other words, he, he had reason to think you were lying because... Everybody thinks the FBI always tells the truth. Well, I did. And their story was different than yours. Right. About what you had said. Right, had exactly. So, um, and you, But you won this journalist's confidence. Yes, And I he did. figured out that you were telling the truth, and the government of the United States was telling the, the lies. That's right. The FBI was definitely um, misrepresented what I said completely. They, they lied. I mean, they, they lied about what I said. Well, if that testimony does not raise your eyebrow, I think you must not have an investigative or curious bone in your body. And certainly there are other accounts of witnesses being harassed or ignored that I think deserve looking into. But let's move along to another, I think, key piece of this puzzle in the determination of any crime scene, whether or not a murder had taken place and who was responsible for it, the determination of the murder weapon itself. Let's go back to that Whitewater Foster report that we read at the uh, top of today's episode because it had a very interesting sentence that I hope you picked up on. It said, that gun, the evidence tends to show, belonged to Mr. Foster. That's a pretty startlingly mealy-mouthed way of putting it, and it would, at least to my mind, raise the specter of, well, why does the evidence tend to show that that was his gun? How on earth were they not able to positively identify the gun and prove that it, in fact, was Vince Foster's? Well, this goes back to something that came out of the FBI's investigation in which they did indeed take a gun to be identified by Vince Foster's wife, Linda Foster, sorry, Lisa Foster. And they took this gun to her to be identified, and during the course of that investigation, they concluded that she did indeed identify the silver gun that they presented to her as being Vince Foster's uh, gun, and that being the gun that was found at the scene that day. So this, uh, this corresponds to the actual 302 documents, and for those of you who out there who don't know, the FBI uses... Uh, preliminary notes of an, uh, their, their interview, which is called a 302, which is uh, kind of the, the, the official write-up of what took place during the interview. And uh, it, these, these documents were actually FOIA'd from the Star investigation by an uh, investigator later on. And when those uh, actual FBI documents were found, they did indeed show that the FBI had consistently uh, questioned uh, Lisa Foster, Vince Foster's wife, about the silver gun. And that silver gun description was used no less than three times in the FBI documents themselves. The only problem with this is that the actual crime scene photographs that were broadcast by ABC News 
clearly shows that the gun found in Vince Foster's hand at the scene of the crime in Fort Marcy Park that day on July 20th, 1993, was black. A minor discrepancy? Uh, I'll let you decide. Oh, and the bullet that actually killed him was never found. Well, uh, two very absolutely central pieces of the puzzle to any investigation and determination of whether foul play had taken place that are completely missing from even the official whitewash investigation. So that, again, should raise some significant uh, red flags for anyone who is concerned about the investigation that took place. But wait, it gets worse. What about Vince Foster's actual movements that day? Where was he? Who was he with? What took place in the wake of his death? Who knew what when? All of these various basic details that, again, have to be determined in the case of any murder investigation or suspected suicide investigation. And here again, the official record is filled with contradictions and fabrications and outright lies. So once again, let's turn back to the Whitewater investigation from their factual summary where they say, quote, According to the testimony of a number of witnesses, Mr. Foster attended the morning Rose Garden ceremony announcing the nomination of Louis G. F- Louis J. Free to the director of the FBI. According to Ms. Tripp and Ms. Pond, at about 12 or 12.30 p.m., Mr. Foster asked them for lunch from the White House mess. After eating lunch in his office, Mr. Foster left the council's suite. He was seen leaving by Ms. Tripp, Ms. Pond, and Ms. Mr. Castleton. The OIC, like the other investigative bodies before us, has not learned of or located who definitively saw Mr. Foster from the time he left the White House until near 6 p.m., at which time a private citizen found Mr. Foster dead in Fort Marcy Park. Again, one problem with that account and the things that are left out of it is that, again, as was indicated in that What Really Happened article from earlier on, the White House is one of the most heavily secured buildings in the world and does have its own entry and exit logs. It does have access guards. It does have uh, an access system, and it does have uh, a private security video surveillance uh, system installed by MITRE Corporation. And absolutely zero evidence has been presented that Vince Foster left the White House of his own accord that day. But there were suspicious activities taking place in his offices later on that evening, uh, something that has been pointed out by various eyewitnesses and has even become a matter of public record that was reported on even on the nightly news back in the mid-1990s. In Washington, the Republicans' all-out offensive on Whitewater today featured contradictory testimony on a key question. Did anyone in the Clinton administration remove documents from the office of presidential aide Vincent Foster in some sort of cover-up following Foster's suicide? Chief Washington correspondent Bob Schieffer has the story. In the most dramatic development yet, a Secret Service officer swore he saw Mrs. Clinton's chief of staff, Maggie Williams, bringing a stack of documents out of Vince Foster's office in the hours after he died. What was she carrying? She was carrying what I would describe in her arms and hands as folders. Which, O'Neill went on to say, she took to her own office and then... ...and came out within a few more seconds and locked the door. Since it all happened in a five-foot hallway, Republican Luck Fairclough said he understood O'Neill's certainty of what he saw. Maybe you're a pretty big man. Now, a lady coming by you with a stack of papers that high would be kind of hard to miss, wouldn't it? Yes, it would, I think. But Democrats said O'Neill was so confused about details, his account was suspect. As I've gone through the depositions, there are eight examples where, Officer O'Neill, you have contradicted yourself. And Williams herself said it just did not happen, that she took nothing and that two voluntary polygraph tests showed she was telling the truth. Did you remove anything from Mr. Forster's office on the 20th? No, sir, I did not. Did anybody give you anything on the 20th to remove? No, sir, they did not. For everyone there, she said, it was a night of unbelievable grief. I couldn't believe he was dead. While senators were split about whom to believe about that night, Ms. Williams freely acknowledged that two days later after a police search, she did help remove the Clinton's personal investment records, including the ones on Whitewater, from the office. Because she was tired, she said she stored them for a while in the Clinton's personal quarters, then sent them on to an outside lawyer for safekeeping. 
Bob Schieffer, CBS News at the Capitol. Another fascinating piece of the puzzle, and there is a lot more surrounding that particular aspect of the story that I will leave you to investigate on your own. There's a lot more information about that, but unfortunately today we don't have enough time to go through every single piece of this puzzle. So let's continue pressing forward with another absolutely central, absolutely perhaps the most core central issue to any determination of suicide, an examination of the suicide note. So this uh, is an incredibly important piece of the record, and the suicide note that was found at the scene reads, I made mistakes from ignorance, inexperience, and overwork. I did not knowingly violate any law or standard of conduct. No one in the White House, to my knowledge, violated any law or standard of conduct, including any action in the travel office. There was no intent to benefit any individual or specific group. The FBI lied in their report to the AG. The press is covering up the illegal benefits they received from the travel staff. The GOP has lied and misrepresented its knowledge and role and covered up a prior investigation. The usher's office plotted to have excessive costs incurred, taking advantage of khaki and HRC. The public will never believe the innocence of the Clintons and their loyal staff. The WSJ editors lie without consequence. I was not meant for the job or the spotlight of public life in Washington. Here, ruining people is considered sport. Well, the suicide note itself, and obviously quite conclusive of the fact that the Clintons were absolutely squeaky clean, and that Vince Foster just simply couldn't take the barrage of media attention and negative publicity that comes with being in the White House and having so many people lying about the Clintons to whom you are so loyal. Just a couple of problems with that suicide note. Once again, going from whatreallyhappened.com, quote, No single item connected to the Foster death has aroused as much controversy as the so-called suicide note. This was a note allegedly written by Vincent Foster and discovered in his briefcase some days after his death. The problem was that Bernard Nussbaum, in controlling the Park Police search of Foster's office, had shown them that same briefcase empty just two days before. Coupled with that was the fact that the White House did not report the existence of the note for almost 36 hours after it was allegedly discovered. Adding another odd aspect to the note was the great pains taken to conceal it from the public. Even though the text itself had been published, Jim Hamilton made a point during Lisa Foster's FBI interview to remind everyone that photos of the note were not to be allowed out, even in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. Hamilton went so far as to request in a letter to Janet Reno the return of the actual suicide note as soon as possible and thanks her again for refusing to allow photographs of the note to be allowed in public. Such secrecy surrounding a supposed suicide note aroused much curiosity, which was finally satisfied when someone on the inside leaked a photocopy of the note to the Wall Street Journal, which published it. The availability of the note prompted James Davidson at Strategic Investment to commission three of the world's top document examiners to examine the note. In their report, all three experts judged the note to be a forgery. And quote, well, a slight problem for the official story, as I'm sure you'll concede. Well, it gets even worse. Uh, we can take this from All Politics, which had a uh, report back in the mid-1990s, August 27th, Memo links first lady to handling of suicide note. Quote, The same day Hillary Clinton was scheduled to speak at the Democratic National Convention, newly released documents suggest she was behind the 30-hour delay in releasing late White House counsel Vince Foster's suicide note to authorities. How the White House handled Foster's 1993 death and the possibility that administration officials improperly removed documents from his office or impeded an official search of it has been the subject of intense scrutiny by congressional Republicans in the media. End quote. Of course, the other possibility is that it did not exist at the time of, of uh, Vincent Foster's death and thus took several hours to construct, but I suppose we can't broach that possibility in a nice polite report from a reputable source like All Politics. Well, how about this doozy from the New York Times? Hillary Clinton's fingerprints among those found on papers. Quote, Republicans on the Special Senate Whitewater Committee released a report from the Federal Bureau of Investigation today showing that the fingerprints of First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton were found on records discovered in the White House family quarters two years after they were sought by investigators. This is clearly important and relevant evidence, said Michael Chertoff, the counsel for the committee's Republicans. 
it clearly means she touched these records at some point in time. But Mark Fabiani, a special White House counsel, said Mrs. Clinton's Mrs. Clinton acknowledged that she probably read the documents in 92 during the election campaign when questions about Whitewater were being raised by reporters. He added that she had testified under oath that she had nothing to do with the documents during the two years that they were missing and did not know how they ended up in the family quarters. So at the very, very least, we have a very strong circumstantial, to be sure, but still a very strong case that this was a politically motivated murder. And at the very least, there has been a strong co concerted, co uh, coordinated effort to cover up these facts. So here we are, and this is at the very least, the broad outlines of the case that the suicide of Vincent Foster was not a suicide at all, but like so many of the other suicides that we've looked at in this podcast in the past, from people like Danny Casolero to Dr. David Kelly to the DC Madam to many others that we've profiled, this suicide as well was a case of not suicide, but of being suicided, set up to look like a suicide, but in fact was a murder. Again, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle, both from the forensic investigation, from the, from the other circumstantial evidence, from a lot of the different pieces of the puzzle that we don't have time to take a look at every single piece today. But at the very least, that's the broad outline of the case. So, in the interest of fairness, perhaps we should look at the other side. What is the official story or the official way of refuting these problematic approaches to this story? Well, Let's look at the Snopes.com take on this particular item in the Clinton body count list. Snopes, in all its infinite wisdom, writes, quote, On the 10th of October 1997, Special Prosecutor Kenneth Starr released his report on the investigation into Foster's death, the third such investigation, after ones conducted by the coroner and Starr's predecessor, Robert B. Fisk, of the matter. The 114-page summary of a three-year investigation concluded that Foster shot himself with the pistol discovered in his right hand. There was no sign of a struggle, nor any evidence he'd been drugged or intoxicated, or that his body had been moved. If Foster had been murdered, or if unanswered questions about his death remained, Starr would have been the last person to want to conclude the investigation prematurely. Or are we expected to believe that Star is part of the cover-up too? And if we buy into the conspiracy theory, what are we expected to believe? That a group of professional killers capable of carrying out dozens of murder all over the world shot Vince Foster, then clumsily dumped him in a park after he had bled out, planted a gun he didn't own in his own hand without bothering to press his fingerprints onto it, amateurishly forged a suicide note in several different handwritings, then expected the nation would believe it was suicide? End quote. Well, that's Snopes.com's take on it, and it's interesting they bring up all of the discrepancies that point to the fact that the official investigation and conclusion was by no means the last word on the subject, and yet dismisses it because, uh, again, it's the argument that's the uh, fallacy of appeal to incredulity. Well, I can't believe that all that took place, therefore it didn't, which of course is a logical fallacy, and people who want to investigate that further, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can cogitate more on what that is. But suffice it to say, no, they're not putting forward any type of argument that actually would in any way dismiss those bizarre findings uh, that, that the, the official investigations never came to. But let's, I mean, we've already looked at a lot of the forensic evidence and some of the facts of this case, but let's at least pick up on that one point that they raise, that of all the people who were investigating this, surely Kenneth Starr, who was just a pit bull going after Clinton, surely he he would have wanted anything that he could dig up on the Clintons, and he would have no reason for dismissing this prematurely, because surely, I mean, the left-right politics game is so, it's true, it's real, they're really different sides, they're not, they're not in coordination on the big matters, certainly not. Well, of course, that is directly contradicted by a resignation letter from the Kenneth Starr investigation by Associate Independent Counsel, uh, who offered his resignation on January 17th, 1995. I will put the link in the show notes so you can read the resignation letter for yourself. But in that letter, he goes on to detail how he was uh, appointed to and he proceeded to question the evidence that was being presented that was supposedly overwhelmingly in favor of the conclusion that Foster had committed suicide. And this person laid out not only some of the facts that contradicted those conclusions, but some of the investigatory steps that would be needed to be taken to actually come to the bottom of what or who was behind the murder of Vince Foster. 
and he was placed under review and uh, his work was called into question, so he ended up putting in his resignation in January of 1995. So again, there are direct people from within that own investigation who themselves believed a cover-up was going on and who resigned over it. So for Snopes to come out high-handedly and say, oh, we're expected to believe that Kenneth Starr's investigation was a cover-up? What conspiracy theory? Yes, a conspiracy theory propounded by some of the people within that investigation itself. And trust me, I am just scratching the surface of some of these contradictions and things that are coming out of these official investigations. So once again, I will exhort you to go to the documentation list for today's episode to continue this investigation for yourself. But let's not leave things there. Let's give the other side another kick at the can in defending the official story of the Vincent Foster suicide. And this time, let's leave it up to an independent third-party arms-length assessment from an investigative reporter, Ronald Kessler, who wrote The Secrets of the FBI. Let's talk a little bit about the strange case of Vince Foster. He was a deputy White House counsel, committed suicide in 1993. Some say, others think perhaps not. What did, what did you uncover? I found that he, he did commit suicide. A lot of these conspiracy theories were were unfounded, but at the same time, what never came out and is in this book, The Secrets of the FBI, that um, the uh, a week before his uh, suicide, Hillary Clinton had a meeting with him in the White House with other top aides, and she totally reamed him out, uh, humiliated him in front of all these other White House aides, uh, called him a small-town hick lawyer. You'll never make it in the big time. And she was friends with him, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, he was her mentor back at the law firm in, in Arkansas. Um, but the, this is typical Hillary. And, and uh, simply because she uh, disagreed with with a legal interpretation that he, he had made. Um, and after that, the FBI found that uh, his behavior changed dramatically. He already was depressed, but he became much more withdrawn. He would break into tears easily. Uh, he didn't want to uh, have any interaction with anybody. And a week later, he committed suicide. So the FBI concluded that that uh, meeting is what triggered his suicide. Now, maybe he would have committed suicide eventually anyway. We know it's an irrational act, but, but that's the story that never came out. What couldn't he take? What pushed him over the edge? Um, it was the uh, feeling that, gee, you know, he he felt already like a failure. He he took personally all this criticism, and 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 then to have Hillary, uh, who brought him to the White House, and uh, to whom he had been a mentor, uh, embarrass him in front of all these A's. I mean, we would all be pretty uh, upset. I wouldn't kill myself over that. No, thank God. <laughs> But, um, that's, that's why many don't think he did that, that perhaps yeah, he was yeah, rubbed well, out. I know. I, but, you know, I, I pursued all those leads and, and uh, you know, top top medical examiners have, have debunked a lot of the claims about, about, you know, where the bullets were and all that. And, and you know, there are always some, some little issues with, with these uh, uh, murders and assassinations. Well, and, and he was on antidepressant drugs as well. Ronald, stay with us. We're going to come back and talk a little bit. About well, I will put a link into the full version of that interview with Ronald Kessler, author of Secrets of the FBI on Coast to Coast AM. For those of you with the intestinal fortitude to sit through that entire interview, but once you do, you'll find that Ronald Kessler, for example, believes, yes, of course, Marilyn Monroe's suicide was just a suicide. And yes, the, uh, the, uh, the investigation into the JFK assassination, that was absolutely just a a wonderful example of a very, very detailed investigation, and they came to the right conclusion, and uh, many, many other things in which every single case he upholds the official line. The FBI is doing their darndest in this war on terror, and that's why we haven't been attacked again on the homeland, etc., etc. He uh, toes the party line in each and every case, and apparently the secrets that he reveals in his Secrets of the FBI book are the secrets of how the FBI were just so badass and going after the mafia and other things like that. It's uh, it's just 
head-shakingly um, disgusting to see how much of uh, someone on the payroll that he apparently seems to be. But uh, but again, I'll leave you to conclude that for yourself after listening to the entire interview, should you wish to. But suffice it to say that the, uh, the evidence on the other side of the matter, the evidence that this was indeed a suicide and nothing but a suicide, and that there was no example of cover-up or anything untoward in the investigation of Vince Foster's death, is a bunch of baloney. And uh, once again, there was copious documentation for today's episode that will leave you obviously, uh, well, I would assume coming to the similar conclusion. But again, come to your own conclusion. Look at the actual documents. Look at the records. Look at the actual FBI 302 investigation and interview records. Look at the actual newspaper reports that were coming out at that time. Look at all of the evidence and come to your own conclusions. But at the very least, I'm sure you will join me in calling for another real investigation into what happened with Vince Foster and who was really behind it. Well, we're going to have to leave things there. Once again, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You've been listening to and or watching the Corbett Report podcast, and this is listener-supported media, so this open-source investigation is brought to you by you, and I do require your support to continue doing it. And for all of those of you out there who have been asking for an alternative payment method, and for all of those of you who have been asking for uh, Bitcoin in particular, you will note that I now accept Bitcoin payments for both subscriptions to my uh, e-newsletter and for purchases of the Last Word DVD. And I did actually get a payment for the uh, the first subscriber via Bitcoin today, so thank you for that. But if you do subscribe via Bitcoin, I have no idea who you are or what your email address is or where to send your e-newsletter, etc. So if you subscribe to the newsletter via Bitcoin, please send me a copy of the transaction ID so that uh, I know it's you and that I can send you the e-newsletter. And if you uh, want to purchase a DVD via that, you'll have to send me a shipping address so I know where to send the DVD. And on that note, once again, I am James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again next week.